Welcome back to the lecture series on decision-making in public service. Today I'm going to be walking through part two from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And part two will include the following chapters. The Law of Small Numbers, Anchors, The Science of Availability, Availability, Emotion, and Risk, Tom W.'s Specialty, Linda, less is more, causes Trump statistics, regression to the mean, and taming intuitive predictions. In this lecture and in this part in the book, we're going to get into a little bit more of the specifics of how heuristics and biases influence your decision making, what some of these specific heuristics and biases are, um, how we struggle to deal with mere statistical facts, and we're going to close with some ways of taming your intuitions in ways that are more useful for predictions. But with that, we'll jump right in and start with the law of small numbers. Um, and as I mentioned already, system one is inept when faced with merely statistical facts, which happen to change the probability of outcomes, but do not cause them to happen. So a theme from this part is going to be that we are very poor intuitive statisticians, which if you've taken a statistics course, you probably have some familiarity with. And if you haven't, um, trying to learn inferential statistics is a bit of a challenge. And as we're going to continue to see, many pieces of thinking about statistics go against our intuitions. And one of the first basic pieces of this is that we're rather insensitive, not good at, uh, distinguishing the errors that are associated with small samples versus large samples. And as Kahneman tells us, large samples are more precise than small samples, and small samples yield extreme results more often than large samples do. So with these small samples, if you, uh, you're you more likely to get values that are more extreme. And that Kahneman highlights us with an example of rural counties versus urban counties, and how rural counties often have both the lowest and highest rates of cancer. And that has to do with smaller samples than in the larger counties. And part of this is a bias, uh, results from a bias of confidence over doubt. And so when we have some information to rely on, we take it as given or taking it as accurate and don't pay as much attention to the size of the sample which uh, determines the size of the potential error. As Kahneman says, as I described earlier, system one is not prone to doubt. It suppresses ambiguity and spontaneously constructs stories that are as coherent as possible. Unless the message is immediately negated, the associations that it evokes will spread as if the messages were true. You may remember here the associative machine from early chapters. Kahneman goes on to say, System 2 is, a, is capable of doubt because it can maintain incompatible possibilities at the same time. However, 
Sustaining doubt is harder work than sliding into uncertainty. As you may remember as well, keeping system two engaged requires effort and attention, and you have a lazy system two. Kahneman goes on to say, the law of small numbers is a manifestation of a general bias that favors certainty over doubt, which will turn up in many guises in following chapters. And, as Kahneman alludes to, you will be seeing more of this throughout this, this lecture and this part of the book. And Kahneman talks about how we really struggle with understanding a random process and that we are eager to attribute a causal story to a process that's just random. He says, when, he says, we do not expect to see regularity produced by a random process. And when we detect what appears to be a rule, we quickly reject the idea that the process is truly random. Random processes produce many sequences that convince people that the process is not random at all. So you might think of people you know or in your own head when you've seen one example or two examples of something and then all of a sudden you jump into a causal story about why those one or two examples must cause the thing that happened. One of the uh, examples that Kahneman uses here as, uh, an, exam uh, as an example in the book uh, quoting, uh, referencing his uh, an earlier paper he had done with Amos Tversky, he says uh, they cite the statistician William Feller, who illustrated the case with which people see patterns where none exists. During the intensive rocket bombing of London in World War II, it was generally believed that the bombing could not be random because a map of the hits revealed conspicuous gaps. Some suspected that German spies were located in the unharmed areas. A careful statistical analysis revealed that the distribution of hits was typical of a random process. So here's an example where people were coming up with all kinds of causal stories for something that was actually random. Another example Kahneman gives of this is uh, basketball shots, when people talk about someone having a hot hand. He says, analysis of thousands of sequences of shots led to a disappointing conclusion. There's no such thing as a hot hand in professional basketball, either in shooting from the field or scoring from the foul line. Of course, some players are more accurate than others, but the sequence of successes and missed shots satisfies all tests of randomness. <laughs> and in a funny little quote here, when the celebrated coach of the Boston Celtics, Rod Red Auerbach, heard of Jovic in his study, the study that the hot hands didn't exist, he responded with, quote, who is this guy? So he makes a study. I couldn't care less. The tendency to see patterns and randomness is overwhelming. Certainly more impressive than a guy making a study. Kahneman goes on to say, The simple answer to these questions is that if you follow your intuition, you will more often than not err by misclassifying a random event as systematic. We are far too willing to reject the belief that much of what we see in life is random. Kahneman closes out this chapter by saying, The exaggerated faith in small samples is only one example of a more general illusion. We pay more attention to the content of messages than to information about their reliability, and as a result, end up with a view of the world around us that is simpler and more coherent than data justify. 
Statistics produce many observations that appear, appear to beg for causal explanations, but do not lend themselves to such explanations. Many facts of the world are due to chance, including accidents of sampling. All right, moving along to chapter 11 uh, with a focus on anchors. And anchors is generally the idea, and kind of shocking so, that you can be essentially primed with any number that someone throws out there, that your brain can't help but adjust or anchor to and adjust from that number, both unconsciously in system one and in system two when you try to adjust. He says here at the beginning of this chapter, the phenomenon we were studying is so common and so important in the everyday world that you should know its name. It is an anchoring effect. It occurs when people consider a particular value for an unknown quantity before estimating that quantity. What happens is one of the most reliable and robust results of experimental psychology. The estimates stay close to the number that people considered, hence the image of an anchor. He goes on to give a couple examples. If you consider how much you should pay for a house, you will be influenced by the asking price. The same house will appear more valuable if its listing price is higher than if it is low. Even if you are determined to resist the influence of this number, um, and so on, the list of anchoring effects is endless. This plays out over and over and again in this chapter. Uh, and Kahneman provides several explanations, uh, excuse me, several examples. And he says, moving forward, system one understands sentences by trying to make them true. And the selective activation of compatible thoughts produces a family of systematic errors that makes us gullible and prone to believe too strongly what we believe. System 1 tries its best to construct a world in which the anchor is the true number. Think again of the associative machine. This is one of the, one of the manifestations of the associative coherence that I described in the first part of the book, says Metzinger. Uh, Metzinger. I'm having a hard time moving on from Metzinger. Says Kahneman. The selective activation of compatible memories explains... Anchoring, the high and low numbers activate different sets of ideas in memory. And Kahneman goes on to highlight how the anchoring effect is quite large and can be measured. And he describes that in some detail in the book, which I will leave you to reference there. And part of the reason is that anchoring can often be quite reasonable. Um, and... You know, the, one of the examples he gives is that if someone throws out a number, your brain assumes that the number they're throwing out would be an honest assessment, an honest guess, uh, an honest estimate of what the truth is. And so your brain starts jumping to conclusions as we have this, um, we like to suppress doubt uh, and we have overconfidence in what the conclusions we jump to. All of these things contribute to jumping to conclusions, and then it's really hard if that anchor, if that number is thrown out, if it's not the right one for us to adjust. And we do this, again, both consciously and consciously.
And interestingly, the uh, as Kahneman says, the conclusion is clear. Anchors do not have their effects because people believe they are informative. So anchors have effects just because they're thrown out there. And this has some problems or some implications for both how we view ourselves and for public policy. Um, he says, Kahneman says here um, in the uses and abuses of anchors section, the psych psychological mechanisms that produce anchoring make us far more suggestible than most of us would want to believe. And this has some implications for nego negotiating, as you might imagine. If someone throws out a number first, that becomes the anchor, um, and it's hard to walk away from. Kahneman gives an, an interesting example from public policy here that I'm going to read to you just before anchoring in the two systems section. Finally, try your hand at working out the effect of anchoring on a problem of public policy, the sizes of damages in personal injury cases. These awards are sometimes very large. Businesses that are frequent targets of such lawsuits, such as hospitals and chemical companies, have lobbied to set a cap on the awards. Before you read this chapter, you might have thought that capping awards is certainly good for potential defendants. But now you should not be so sure. Consider the effect of capping awards at $1 million. The rule would eliminate all larger awards, but the anchor would also pull up the size of many awards that would otherwise be much smaller. It would almost certainly benefit serious offenders and large firms much more than small ones. Kahneman goes on to say at the end of the chapter, the main moral of priming research is that our thoughts and our behavior are influenced much more than we know or want by the environment of the moment. Many people find the priming results unbelievable because they do not correspond to subjective experience. Many others find the results upsetting because they threaten the subjective sense of agency and autonomy. However, you should assume that any number that is on the table has had an anchoring effect on you. And if the stakes are high, you should mobilize yourself, your system too, to combat the effect. All right, moving on to the science of availability uh, chapter. The availability heuristic, as Kahneman says, like other heuristics of judgment, substitutes one question for another. You wish to estimate the size of a category or the frequency of an event, but you report an impression of the ease with which instances come to mind instead. A few examples that Kahneman provides. A salient memory that attracts your attention will be easily retrieved from memory and thus be more available. A dramatic event temporarily increases the availability of its category. For example, a plane crash that attracts media coverage will temporarily alter your feelings about the safety of flying. Kahneman uh, provides another uh, example. Personal experiences, pictures, and vivid examples are more available than incidents that happen to others or mere words or statistics. He goes on to give a nice example from Married Life. Um, and he says, in a famous study, spouses were asked, how large was your personal contribution to keeping the place tidy in percentages? They also answered similar questions about taking out the garbage, initiating social engagements, etc. Would the self-estimated contributions add up to 100% or more or less? As expected, the self-assessed contributions added up to more than 100%. The explanation is a simple availability bias. 
both spouses remember their own individual efforts and contributions much more clearly than those of the other, and the difference in availability leads to a difference in judge frequency. So, do not let the availability bias ruin your relationships. So, kind of gives a little bit of advice here, too. He says, I am generally not optimistic about the potential for personal control of biases, but this is an exception, referring to the availability bias. The opportunity for successful debiasing exists because the circumstances in which issues of credit allocation come up are easy to identify. The more so because tensions often arise when several people at once feel that their efforts are not adequately recognized. The, more, the mere observation that there is usually more than 100% credit to go around is sometimes sufficient to diffuse the situation. In any event, it is a good thing for every individual to remember. You will occasionally do more than your share, but it is useful to know that you are likely to have that feeling even when each member of the team feels that same way. This is something that I have personally witnessed uh, working with a lot of group projects in, in my classes. People often believe that there was, uh, when you add up the amount of percentages they believe they contributed, it's often much more than 100%. Conway gives a number of other examples um, about the science of availability. And in particular, he talks about uh, fluency as well. Um, and how, uh, how you're expecting something and how that impacts uh, whether or not you uh, engage in the availability bias. And so expectations play a role in this. He says, the answer is that, in fact, no complex reasoning is needed. Among the basic features of System 1 is its ability to set expectations and to be surprised when these expectations are violated. The system also retrieves possible causes of a surprise, usually by finding a possible cause among recent surprises. Furthermore, System 2 can reset the expectations of System 1 on the fly, so that an event that would normally be surprising is now almost normal. Common goes on to say, the conclusion is that the ease with which instances come to mind is a System 1 heuristic which is replaced by a focus on content when System 2 is more engaged. Multiple lines of evidence converge on the conclusion that people who let themselves be guided by System 1 are more, are more strongly susceptible to availability bias than others who are in a state of higher vigilance. Okay, moving on. Availability, emotion, and risk, the next chapter. And in this chapter, Kahneman's going to highlight how both emotions and how strongly uh, you have an emotional response to something increases the availability of it, and how risk plays a role in this as well. For example, uh, Kahneman lists some examples of how people estimate probability of causes of death and how far off they are from the actual statistical facts. And he says the lesson is clear. Estimates of causes of death are warped by media coverage. The coverage itself is itself biased towards novel novelty and poignancy. The world in our heads, he says, is not a precise replica of reality. 
Our expectations about the frequency of events are distorted by the prevalence and emotional intensity of the message to which we are exposed. In referencing Paul Slavic and some of the work he's done, he says, but Slavic and his colleagues were led to a deeper insight. They saw that the ease with which ideas of various risks come to mind and the emotional reactions to those risks are inextricably linked. And so the way we uh, assess risk is in large part tied to our emotions. And they, he says, frightening thoughts and images occur to us with particular ease and thoughts of danger that are fluent and vivid exasperate fear. The effect heuristic is what they're calling, is what, what this is called, as an, as an instance of substitution in which the answer to an easy question, how do I feel about it, serves as an answer to a much harder question, what do I think about it? And kind of goes on to highlight how this plays out with our assessments of risks of all kinds of things, and in particular technology, and that we have this tendency to correlate our risks with the benefits even when that may not be true. And so, for example, he says, uh, Kahneman says, when people were favorably disposed towards a the technology, they rated it as offering large benefits and imposing little risks. When they disliked a technology, they could think only of its disadvantages and few advantages came to mind. So the idea here is that, you know, in the real world, in actuality, a technology, for example, could be very risky and also have potentially large benefits. So one of the examples from my own studies that I've been thinking a lot about lately is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence isn't a simple clear-cut case with its uh, risks being low and its benefits being high. Rather, um, there are a lot of potential benefits to advances in artificial intelligence, but it also comes with a lot of risks. And so this is one example of a technology that needs a little bit more nuanced approach. Kahneman goes on to say, the striking finding was that people who had received a message extolling the benefits of a technology also changed their beliefs about its risks. Similarly, respondents who were told only that the risks of a technology were mild, developed a more favorable view of its benefits. The effect heuristic simplifies our lives by creating a world that is much tidier than reality. Again, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the real world, as Kahneman says, of course, we often face painful trade-offs between benefits and costs. Artificial intelligence being an example of this. Kahneman goes into a detailed discussion about the role of public experts and risk, which I'll leave mostly for to you to review. Um, towards the end of the chapter, on page uh, right before the end, on page 144 in the hardback version, uh, Kahneman mentions about how this plays out in modern politics, in particular with reference to terrorism. He says, in today's world, terrorists are the most significant practitioners of the art of inducing availability cascades. Terrorism speaks directly to System 1. It's very vivid. It in, uh, it, it's vivid. It's emotional. It's often graphic. Its goal is to raise its awareness and our availability bias and in the ease in which we retrie retrieve those instances to make us afraid. 
hence the term terrorism. All right, moving on, we talk about Tom W's specialty. And here Kahneman invokes the note of a base rate. And um, you can think of this as he says in the beginning of the chapter, the proportion of marbles of a particular kind in a larger uh, in a larger bowl of marbles is the base rate. So if you have uh, ten marbles and five of them are red, then the base rate would be fifty, fifty percent, because half of them would be red. And using this base rate is going to be the obvious move when no other information is provided. So the basic idea here is that if we know something about how frequently something occurs without a lot of additional details, that's usually where we should put our starting point, the average occurrence of something. And he uses the Tom W. Uh, example here. I'm going to read it to you so that you have it for a reference point. Um, he says, the following is a personality sketch of Tom W. written during Tom's senior year in high school by a psychologist on the basis of psychological tests of, and importantly here, although he doesn't flag it in the example, of uncertain validity. Tom W. is of high intelligence, although lacking in true creativity. He has a need for order and clarity and for neat and tidy systems in which every detail finds its appropriate place. His writing is rather dull and mechanical, occasionally enlivened by somewhat corny puns and flashes of imagination of the sci-fi type. He has a strong drive for competence. He seems to have little feel and little sympathy for other people and does not enjoy interacting with others. Self-centered, he nonetheless has a deep moral sense. Now, please take a sheet of paper and rank the nine fields of specialization listed below by how similar the description of Tom W. is to the typical graduate student in each of the following fields. Use one for the most likely and nine for the least likely. And the examples were business administration, computer science, engineering, humanities and education, law, medicine, library science, physical and life sciences, social science, and social work. And the, the basic idea here is that this description of Tom we know is, uh, is, is not very good. Um, it has uncertain validity, so we don't have a lot of, of confidence in the additional information. But that our, we immediately want to uh, paint Tom as fitting in one of these categories of, of majors. But the truth is our information isn't particularly good. And so what we want to start with is the base rate of how frequent are these actual majors out in the world. So we're trying to make a guess of how, how, how typical, uh, how similar the description of Tom W. is to the typical graduate student. And the idea here is that we rely on descriptions of stereotypes. So even though this description is listed as not particularly valid, 
we all of a sudden start putting Tom in in groups based on the representativeness of his description rather than the base rate of how many students are actually in those majors. And this is called the uh, representativeness heuristic. And as Kahneman says, they expected people to focus exclusively on the similarity of the description to the stereotypes. They called it representativeness, ignoring both the base rates and the doubts about the veracity of the description. They would then rank the small specialty computer science as highly probable because the outcome gets the highest repre um, representativeness score. And he says, as expected, uh, people substituted a judgment of representativeness for the probability for which they were asked to assess. Substitution was perfect in this case, Kahneman says. There was no indication that the participants did anything else but judge representativeness. The question about probability, likelihood, was difficult, but the question about similarity was easier, and it was answered instead. Kahneman goes on to say, the representativeness heuristic is involved when someone says, she will win the election, you can see she is a winner, or he won't go far as an academic, too many tattoos. So again, when judgments are made about the likelihood of something by how, how well they fit the stereotype for a category. However, as Kahneman goes on to say, judging probability by representativeness has important virtues. The intuitive impressions that it produces are often indeed usually more accurate than chance guesses would be. For example, on most occasions, people who act friendly are in fact friendly. A professional athlete who is very tall and thin is much more likely to play basketball than football. However, as Conor goes on to say, in other situations, the stereotypes are false, and the representativeness heuristic will mislead, especially if it causes people to neglect base rate information that points in another direction. Even when the heuristic has some validity, exclusive reliance on it is associated with grave sins against statistical lo logic. One sin of representativeness is an excessive willingness to predict the occurrence of unlikely, low base rate events. Here's an example. You see a person reading the New York Times on the New York subway. Which of the following is a better bet about the reading stranger? She has a PhD or... She does not have a college degree. Representativeness would tell you to bet on the PhD, but this is not necessarily wise. You should seriously consider the second alternative because many more non-graduates than PhDs ride in New York subways. Kahneman goes on to say, when an incorrect intuitive judgment is made, System 1 and System 2 should both be indicted. System 1 suggested the incorrect intuition System 2 endorsed it and expressed it in a judgment. However, there are two possible reasons for the failure of System 2, ignorance or laziness. Some people ignore base rates because they believe them to be irrelevant in the presence of individual information. Others make the same mistake because they are not focused on the task. The second sin of representativeness, as Kahneman tells us, is insensitivity to the quality of evidence. Again, in this first example, the evidence was complete, was noted that the validity was uncertain. 
Kahneman says, you surely understand in principle that worthless information should not be treated differently from a complete lack of information. But what you see is all there is, as you may remember from earlier chapters, makes it very difficult to apply that principle. There is one thing you can do when you have doubts about the quality of the evidence. Let your judgments of probability stay close to the base rate. And this is uh, related to Bayesian statistics. So if you're familiar with Bayesian statistics um, and thinking about priors, this is sort of building on that same intuition. And Kahneman says there are two ideas to keep in mind about Bayesian reasoning and how we tend to mess it up. The first is that base rates matter, even in the presence of evidence about the case at hand. The second is that intuitive impressions of the diagnosticity of evidence are often exaggerated. The combination of what you see is all there is and associative coherence tends to make us believe in the stories we spin for ourselves. The essential keys to disciplined Bayesian reasoning can be, simple, can be simply summarized, as Kahneman says. One, anchor your judgment of the probability of an outcome on a plausible base rate. Two, question the diagnosticity of your evidence. Moving right along, we have the less is, uh, Linda less is more. And this is a really, a really interesting example of how when giving someone more details about uh, a case causes them to deem it more likely, even if all the details are additional and um, one of them is included in another example, or in another category. For example, uh, Kahneman goes on a uh, list some descriptions of a hypothetical Linda and talks about how Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. And then given a couple of descriptions of Linda, uh, people in an experiment were asked, which of these is uh, more likely to be true of Linda? And two of the choices were Linda is a bank teller and Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So by definition, a feminist bank teller must be lower than the probability of her being a bank teller because you have bank teller and feminist movement. However, what Kahneman and his colleagues have found and is found throughout psychological research is that often people will rate more likely Linda as a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement as more likely than Linda is just a bank teller. When all of the examples of Linda as a bank teller uh, are captured and Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So by definition, that has to have lower probability. This problem, as Kahneman says, therefore sets up a conflict between the intuition of representativeness and the logic of probability. This is known as the conjunction fallacy. The judgment, as Kahneman says, of probability that our respondents offered in both the Tom W. and Linda problems corresponded precisely to judgments of representativeness, similar to stereotypes. 
Representativeness belongs to a cluster of closely related basic assessments that are likely to be generated together. The most representative outcomes combine with the personality description to produce the most coherent stories. The most coherent stories are not necessarily the most probable, but they are plausible. And the notions of coherence, plausibility, and probability are easily confused by the unwary. So again, this is the idea that we want a coherent story, we need a coherent narrative, and this coherent narrative is judged more likely uh, to us than the actual logic of probability. Okay, there's a lot more on that in the chapter, but I'm going to keep moving on. If you if you need more examples or would like more examples of that, read more uh, or reread uh, Linda Less is More. This takes us to the chapter Causes Trump Statistics. And um, here Kahneman talks about statistical base rates versus causal base rates. He says statistical base rates are facts about a population to which a case belongs but they are not relevant to the individual case. Causal base rates change your views of how the individual case came to be. The two types of base rate information are treated differently. Statistical base rates are generally underweighted and sometimes neglected altogether when specific information about the case at hand is available. Causal base rates are treated as information about the individual case and are easily combined with other case space, other case specific information. Kahneman goes on to say, stereotyping is a bad word in our culture, but in my usage it is neutral. One of the basic characteristics of System 1 is that it represents categories as norms and prototypical exemplars. Stereotypes, both correct and false, are how we think of categories. Come goes on to say we consider it morally desirable for base rates to be treated as statistical facts about the group rather than as presumptive facts about individuals. In other words, we reject causal base rates. The social norm against stereotyping, including the opposition to profiling, has been highly beneficial in creating a more civilized and more equal society. It is useful to remember, however, that neglecting valid stereotypes inevitably results in suboptimal judgments. Resistance to stereotyping is a laudable moral position, but the simplistic idea that the resistance is costless is wrong. The costs are worth paying to achieve a better society, but denying that the costs exist while satisfying to the soul and politically correct is not scientifically defensible. Kahneman goes on to highlight how it's hard to teach psychology. It's hard for people to change how they think about themselves. Uh, but he gives some, some advice. To teach students any psychology they did not know before, you must surprise them. Which is in part what I've been trying to do with Metzinger and Kahneman. But which surprise will do? Nisbet and Borgita found that when they presented their students with a surprising statistical fact, the students managed to learn nothing at all. 
But when the students were surprised by individual cases, two nice people who had not helped, referencing an example from just before, they immediately made the generalization and inferred that helping is more difficult than they had thought. Nisbet and Borgita summarized the results in a, in a memorable sentence. Subjects' unwillingness to deduce the particular from the general was matched only by their willingness to infer the general from the particular. So again, this idea that mere statistical facts are not uh, something we retain, but stories and narratives and individual examples, we very much like to... Uh, to use to represent the general uh, the general facts. There is a deep gap, as Kahneman says, about thinking about about but blah, blah, there is a deep gap between our thinking about statistics and our thinking about individual cases. Statistical results with a causal interpretation have a stronger effect on our thinking than non-causal information. But even compelling causal statistics will not change long-held beliefs or beliefs rooted in personal experience. On the other hand, surprising individual cases have a powerful impact and are a more effective tool for teaching psychology because the incongruity must be resolved and embedded in a causal story. For those of you in class, you may remember particularly when we were talking about Metzinger and the first part of Kahneman, I tried to use myself as an example to highlight how some of these Statistics are true. To give you um, one example of your professor also falling victim to these heuristics and biases and illusions and illusions of the self. And in part, this is to try to help make these examples stick with you because you don't want to believe some of this about your subjective experience because it doesn't appear true to you. Next chapter, regression to the mean. You are at the Bush School and you're taking this class. You've most likely already taken a quantitative methods course and learned all about correlation and regression. And Kahneman here gives us some more intuition behind what regression to the mean is and why it's so counterintuitive for how we generally think about uh, examining causality. And regression to the mean is, a, is, is in general this idea that we should start with the average of something, the average occurrence of something, the base rate as we've talked about before, and that if we observe large deviations from typical performance, you can expect that eventually that performance will regress to the mean. And Kahneman gives a nice little example here of... of two equations he provided to the magazine Edge. One is that success equals talent plus luck, and great success equals a little more talent and a lot of luck. And he uses the example of golf uh, to think about this, which is where uh, when golfing tournament's going on, someone that's typically an okay golfer does really well on day one. This most likely means that they have an average level of talent and they got lucky. Something The ball fell their way that day. And so you can expect that on day two, these people's performance is likely to, to decline. 
they're more likely to end up where their average is. The same is true of a great golfer who has a bad day one and they perform poorly. You might attribute that. Think about how that might be attributed to bad luck and that on day two, they're more likely to regress to the mean and end up closer to their average performance, which would be better than day one. Kahneman says, my students were always surprised to hear that the best predicted performance on day two is more moderate, closer to the average than the evidence on which it is based, the score on day one. This is why the pattern is called regression to the mean. The more extreme the original score, the more regression we expect, because an extremely good score suggests a very lucky day. This is also at the cornerstone of sabermetrics in baseball for any baseball fans. Kahneman says, whether undetected or wrongly explained, the phenomenon of regression is strange to the human mind. So strange indeed that it was first identified and understood 200 years after the theory of gravitation and differential calculus. Furthermore, it took one of the best minds of the 19th century Britain to make sense of it, and that with great difficulty. So if you have struggled through statistics and understanding the intuition behind regression, you are in the company of most humans. It took Francis Galton, as Kahneman says, several years to figure out that correlation and regression are not two concepts. They are different perspectives of the same concept. The general rule is straightforward, but has surprising consequences. Whenever the correlation between two scores is imperfect, there will be regression to the mean. To illustrate Galton's insight, take a proposition that most people find quite interesting. Highly intelligent women tend to marry men who are less intelligent than they are. Kahneman says you can get a good conversation started at a party by asking for an explanation, and your friends will readily oblige. I encourage you, try this out. Even people who have had some exposure to statistics will spontaneously interpret the statement in causal terms. Some may think of highly intelligent women wanting to avoid the competition of equally intelligent men or being forced to compromise in their choice of spouse because intelligent men do not want to compete with intelligent women. More far-fetched explanations will come up at a good party. Now consider this statement. The correlation between the intelligent scores of spouses is less than perfect. What a boring explanation, but one that happens to be the accurate explanation. Why is it so hard, Kahneman says, to understand regression and, in, and make it an intuitive part of your mind? The main reason for the difficulty is a recurrent theme of this book. Our mind is strongly biased towards causal explanations and does not deal well with, quote, mere statistics. Our difficulties, as Kahneman goes on to say, with the concept of regression originate with both System 1 and System 2. Without special instruction, and in quite a few cases, even after some statistical instruction, the relationship between correlation and regression remains obscure. System 2 finds it difficult to understand and learn. This is due in part to the insistent demand for causal interpretations, which is a feature of System 1. Alright, finally, Chapter 18, Taming Intuitive Predictions. Kahneman gives you here 
some suggestions on how to correct for intuitive predictions. And the general approach, he, he gives an example from GPA and how it might predict someone's grades in, uh, in college. Or, excuse me, reading age and how reading age might be predictive of GPA in college. I'm going to read this example to you. The correct way to predict uh, her GPA, Julie, who is example here in the book, was introduced in the preceding chapter. As I did there for golf on successive days and for weight and piano playing, I write a schematic formula for the factors that determine reading age and college grades. Reading age equals shared factors plus factors to specific reading age, which equals 100%. GPA equals shared factors plus factors specific to GPA, which equals 100%. The shared factors involve genetically determined aptitude, the degree to which the family supports academic interests, and anything else that would cause the same people to be precocious readers as children and academically successful as young adults. Of course, there are many factors that would affect one of these outcomes and not the other. So, here are the directions for how to get there in four simple steps. Start with an estimate of average GPA. Determine the GPA that matches your impression of the evidence. Estimate the correlation between your evidence and GPA. If the correlation is 0.3, move 30% of the distance from the average to the matching GPA. So if you wanted to figure out Julie's likely GPA in college, you start with the baseline. What is the average GPA of students in that college? Then you think about the GPA that matches with your impression of the evidence from her early reading abilities. Estimate the correlation between your evidence and GPA. In this case, we're going to go with a 0.3. And move 30% of the distance from the average GPA to your estimated GPA based on the evidence. Kahneman goes on to give you a few more pointers here. When you have a good reason to trust the accuracy of your intuitive prediction, a strong correlation between the evidence and the prediction, the adjustment will be small. Intuitive predictions need to be corrected because they are not regressive and therefore biased. The corrected intuitive predictions eliminate biases so that predictions both high and low are equally likely to overestimate and to underestimate the true value. You'll still make errors when your predictions are unbiased, but the errors will be smaller and do not favor either high or low outcomes. The biases we find in predictions, as Kahneman goes on to say, that are expressed on a scale such as GPA or the revenue of a firm are similar to the biases observed in judging the probabilities of outcomes. The corrective procedures are also similar. Both contain a baseline prediction, which you would make if you knew nothing about the case at hand. In the categorical case, it was the base rate. In the numerical case, it is the average outcome in the relevant category. Both contain an intuitive prediction, which expresses the number that comes to your mind, whether it is a probability or a GPA. 
In both cases, you aim for a prediction that is intermediate between the baseline and your intuitive response. In the default case of no useful evidence, you stay with the baseline. At the other extreme, you also stay with your initial prediction. This will happen, of course, only if you remain completely confident in your initial prediction after a critical review of the evidence that supports it. In most cases, you will find some reason to doubt that your correlation between your intuitive judgment and the truth is perfect, and you will end up somewhere in between the two poles. This depends a little bit on what types of errors you're trying to minimize. And Kahneman talks about, um, for example, in VC Capital, and trying to find the one um, startup that's going to be successful, your base rate with those is always going to be low, but you know that going in, so be aware of it. Kahneman says, extreme predictions and a willingness to predict rare events from weak evidences are both weak, weak evidence are both manifestations of system one. It is natural for the associative machinery to match the extremeness of predictions to the perceived extremeness of evidence on which it is based. This is how substitution works. And it is natural for system one to generate overconfident judgments because confidence, as we have seen, is determined by the coherence of the best story you can tell from the evidence at hand. Be warned, your intuitions will deliver predictions that are too extreme and you will be inclined to put far too much faith in them. And that concludes part two. We'll move on to part three in the next lecture. And remember, tame your intuitions. Stick with the base rates when you can. And engage system two, particularly when the stakes are high, to help make better decisions. Thanks for following along. I'll be bringing the next lecture to you soon. Thank you.